This episode is brought to you by Rad Dudes Who Love Nature. Well, that's why fish conservation is hard, right? You want to share or save the charismatic, pettable, cute things, and then it's like, there's some fish over here too. I promise they're here. Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. Um, we've got both of our co-hosts today, Billy Brown and... Tony Crosdale. And then we've got a special guest today, Shannon White. Um, and in a little bit, she's going to tell us all about herself and what stuff she researches. Uh, and we're going to talk about sturgeon. And you might be thinking, gosh, that doesn't sound like an urban wildlife topic, but we're going to connect it, dang it, um, once we get to that point. Um, as always, please like us and comment on your podcast listening app of choice. Please tell all your friends about the podcast and how awesome it is. Uh, and um, we do have Patreon. So uh, as you all can imagine, Tony and I, we have never had any expectations of getting rich off this podcast or even breaking even on it. Um, but if you contribute to the Patreon, uh, it'll help us pay for things like web hosting costs. Someday Tony will make up the money he spent on all the equipment um, <laughs> and uh, it, we really appreciate it. You'll find it under the Wildlife Observer Network Patreon. So we appreciate it if you contribute there. Um, with that, uh, I I'm gonna even before we get to our guest, I'm gonna say something really quick. We used to do this more to shout out other podcasts. I have been addicted lately to a Fish and Wildlife Service podcast called The Fish of the Week, um, and it is exactly what it sounds like. You have a couple fish biologists who every week talk about a different fish and they have a, an expert guest on. Um, and there's like fish I'd never, cause there's tons of kinds of fish, fish I'd never heard of before. Last, last time I listened, it was about Colorado pike minnows. Um, and I had no idea that you could combine pike and minnow and it would still be. A really I, I, I know about pike um, minnows. I will say that I, I had, I'm not, it's not the, not, my ears are not virgin to hear none about pike minnows. They're cool looking. Well, mine were, um, but yeah, they are cool. They're like a, they're like the body of a pike with like a carp face attached to it um, with bigger, with a bigger mouth. Um, they were referring to them as having Mick Jagger lips, um, but they're, they're basically the largest of the carp and minnow family that we have in, uh, I think this hemisphere, certainly North America, maybe just North America, but they're big. They can like historically could have gotten up to like six feet long, um, and we're just a pretty awesome fish. Now the Colorado pike minnow are very endangered, like everything else that's native to the Colorado river system. Um, but there's other ones in other parts of the West. Uh, so with all of that, Shannon, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what do you do for a living? Just real quick. I was saying like, I do love fish enough to own a field guide to flying fish. So just saying. <laughs> Perfect. You're, you're, you're ready for this night. Uh, yeah, so um, I am a research biologist with the U.S. Geological Survey Eastern, Ecolo e Eastern Ecological Science Center in uh, Kearneysville, West Virginia. Um, we work on a lot of different species, a lot of different fish. Um, generally speaking, obviously the ones that are of some sort of conservation concern are kind of the top of our radar. They give us the most research monies. There's the ones that need our most help as well. 
Um, but there's a lot of other different species we work on, some plants, some mammals. We're kind of spread across a lot of different uh, taxa there. But generally speaking, my specialty is fish. Um, I'm kind of a trained trout ecologist, but in the last few years, I've jumped ship into um, some more uh, uh, nadromous species with uh, lately kind of a specialty in uh, sturgeon, specifically Atlantic sturgeon. You just mentioned that you're a trout biologist, or that's how you're, you, it's where you, it's where your roots are. Um, yep. And I, this is an interesting question that came up in a, an alert from an environmental organization that I won't name. You know, 99.9% of the time, I love everything they do. But they sent out a notice about a recent fish kill in a stream, and they referred to the, a ton of what they called what they in the in the the release press release called native brown trout getting killed. And so I know the director, and I sent them sent them an email. And I was like, "Hey, brown trout aren't native." And I said, "Did you mean to write brook trout?" And I think Tony even has a T-shirt that I love that says that's got a brook trout on it that says like native species on it if i recall correctly right tony yeah it has a brook trout i don't man where has that shirt gone uh, you just reminded me of that when that shirt i gotta we find out that won't fit me anymore shirt. but yeah it's it yeah it well it has a, a brook trout <laughs> with outline of pennsylvania and it says native underneath it yeah, i think I've, we I've have the same shirt yeah that shirt. that's what i um, have and so in any case the the point that they were making when i wrote back to me was like yeah, they're not native, but they're naturalized. They're sort of part of the, at this point, part of the our suite of species that you find in in streams around Pennsylvania. And I wasn't going to like get an argument about it. I was like, okay, sure. Um, but I I still was sort of scratching my head about it. And I mean, naturalized and native are not yeah, the same thing. Yeah, that is. Um, that, yeah, that's a very interesting. Um, conversation i feel like because there's like the people that are, are purists and it's native only right and then there's folks that are in the camp of you know if it's there it's belongs there more or less it's 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 life basically so let's save all yeah species kind of more or less regardless especially for something that's been there a while and uh established and, and is naturalized or, or wild i think is you know the wild brown trout is the way i've kind of always heard wild it. would be a good way to put it yeah yeah I, and I would... that, that's that's definitely the way i've heard it more more frequently is is just being called wild brown trout um yeah i think it's it's definitely an argument that most states are having right now in trout world where basically throughout the entire range of brook trout there's some competing non-native trout species and so kind of what do you do with a non-native trout um do you manage for it? Do you save it? Cause anglers really love it. Um, or, you know, do you try to get them out because they might be hurting brook trout? And I think that there's, yeah. depending on the stream is kind of deciding it for you to some extent. Yeah. I, I find, and I, I'm going to get back to sturgeon in a sec, but I, I was, as I've done research into what historically has been, uh, introduced around the Philly area um, for a writing project. I was sort of going through lots of stuff, plants, animals. Um, and I was, I just hadn't really thought about it, but I was amazed by how many of the fish that we think of as just natural in, um, nope. in <laughs> the Delaware river drainage, which is our native, our, our home drainage 
Um, and I'm like, smallmouth bass? Nope. Introduced cat, you know, channel catfish? Nope. Introduced, you know, sort of like going yep. down a list and, and you know, we, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's to, not coincidental that a it's a, a lot of right. the like, you know, prized angling species or the, the recreational species, right? Like a, a lot of the recreational oh, species yeah. are, are kind of the problem childs, right? It's something that a, a friend of ours who wrote, who's a write, nature writer in the Philly area, Ken Frank, he basically just spends a lot of time looking at uh, using Google Books because they have all these scanned and publicly mm-hmm. accessible for free um, books that were published long enough ago that their copyrights expired. Um, and so I was finding like writings about about sort of the what fish there are to catch in the Delaware, and a guy saying like it's like basically saying. And they're going to introduce channel catfish soon. It's going to be great. You know, <laughs> like, no. um, you know, sort of anglers who are like itching to get, you know, the the really cool fish to catch into the Delaware drainage um, and sort of brought that that practice to life. Um, and so the, but in any case, the reason, okay, the reason we're talking so much about fish and about sturgeon in particular Sturgeon have been like a, a pet topic of mine in writing for Grid Magazine. It's one of these things that there's some word for this when you're shifting expectations of what should be living around you. you. You sort of like your benchmark drops because you were born after something already got scarce. Um, shifting so, baseline. Shifting baseline. Thank you. Um, mm-hmm. And so one of the species that we've had our baseline shift about um, has been the Atlantic sturgeon in the Delaware drainage, I'm guessing drainages all up and down the, the, the east coast of North America. A, they're huge fish. There used to be, actually, I'm going to let you say the numbers, but just an astonishing drop in what there used to be. There used to be a ton of sturgeon. You know, the reason why the initial population crash might have happened wasn't necessarily related to the city. But now the things that keep them from coming back, many of them are actually what I think of as urban problems, whether that's like keeping channels dredged so that you can have port traffic in and out. Um, whether it's like changes in water quality because of the city around the river. Um, and so I just thought that, that Atlantic sturgeon are, you know, a great urban, actually urban wildlife topic up and down the East coast and something that I get kind of pissed off about. So I'm kind of like, but if I'd been born like 150 years ago, I could have these like massive fish jumping every time I took the ferry over to Camden or something like that. I feel like what Billy what was not being stated is I just want to speak to the mystique of this creature. Um, I think as Philadelphians who are into nature, the Atlantic sturgeon is kind of like our legitimate cryptozoology in that like it's, <laughs> it's not extinct and it was probably the largest creature that is extant that's that inhabited Philadelphia and would be in our rivers. If I'm not mistaken. Right. I mean, I think you got me scratching my head, man. I don't think Buffalo, like Bison made it out this far. And I think we had elk maybe. So that's the closest. Yeah. I mean, I think it's Black probably rivals elk and weight, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I mean, hundreds of pounds. Well, tell us, How big do these suckers get? I mean, yeah. they quote one ton is kind of like what they could get to. Um, I'm not sure of too many one ton sturgeon that are still swimming around them. Certainly there might be, but um, you know, we were just talking about how cryptic these guys are. They are, Atlantic sturgeon are extremely difficult to catch. You know, we have 
the best biologists on the river putting in all the time and effort they can, and we still struggle to catch them sometimes. So, you know, we're catching routinely fish that are in the hundreds of pounds, um, and and that's common. But who knows what's really out there? To be honest with you. Um, and just so we know, if people haven't seen one before, what does an Atlantic sturgeon look like? Oh wow! Um, so. It's a big fish, obviously. Um, so, you know, when you think about a fish, I think a lot of people think about, you know, a bass or a bluegill. It's kind of, you know, the size of your hand and it's got scales on it and, you know, a big dorsal fin maybe with some spines. And that's kind of the blueprint of a fish if you were to draw one. Um, sturgeon kind of knocked that out to the wayside. So um, an Atlantic sturgeon's pretty long. It's not it's not very tall of a fish. So most of it's it's length or, or its sizes and its length. Um, it does not have scales. Instead, um, it has these little bony plates that kind of run down the side of it called scutes. Um, it kind of is bone and they, when they're really little guys, those scutes are actually quite sharp, you know, to keep other things from eating it. Um, but as the fish kind of grows up and, you know, that scute kind of gets worn down, they, they kind of just become little nubs that are on the side of the fish. Um, otherwise, you know, they're, they're a, a brown fish. There's nothing like remarkable in the color, but they have also kind of a, a, a bottom mouth. So they have kind of a, a little snout that sticks out. And then at the, the underside of that snout is a little vacuumy mouth that kind of goes across the entire stream bed, sucking up uh, little pieces of food. And so they, um, and, and I, and, once they're adults, they're out in the ocean for the most part. Yeah. So there's a lot of variation in kind of the timing as to when sturgeon do like kind of these you know, life check marks. Um, so sturgeon, they are really broadly distributed from Canada all the way down to kind of Southern Georgia. And depending on where you are in that range, it kind of dictates some of these life history events where, um, a juvenile Atlantic sturgeon might stay in a freshwater river for one to five years on average, maybe a little bit longer um, before it goes out into the ocean. Once it's in the ocean, it might spend five to 15, 30 years kind of just swimming around the ocean. Um, and then when it's ready to spawn again, it will come back to that freshwater river where it was born. And sometimes even when it's outside of spawning season, they will also swim into freshwater rivers, um, sometimes not even their own freshwater rivers. So they, they do stray quite a bit. Um, but generally speaking, those sub-adults and adults are spending most of their life kind of on the, the continental shelf of the ocean. We think. We don't really know how far off they go, but we think it's mostly kind of sticking closer to the shoreline. And um, I guess talk a little bit about their population levels and, and sort of take us through like what happened to them? How did we have, you know, I'll let you say how many and then how did we end up with as few as we have now? Yeah, um, it's a sad story. So um, there's history. Like if you go back and, and find some texts from, you know, early settlers in Jamestown, um, there's quotes about those settlers seeing, you know, backs of sturgeon and, and just you know, unfathomable numbers of fish. And 
Um, you know, there used to be a, a few dozen spawning rivers throughout the entire East Coast that were probably fairly similar in population size. So we're talking about hundreds of thousands of Atlantic sturgeon that would be in each of those rivers. Um, and then what happened was, for the most part, in the like mid-1800s, the caviar industry took off. And so, um, you know, this was a, a mostly kind of in Russia, where caviar was really popular. And as the Russian species of sturgeon start to get depleted, kind of eyes turn towards America and, you know, what species might exist in America where we could harvest caviar. And Atlantic sturgeon were a, uh, a target. Something really quick, because I, I, I find people don't understand this. You have to kill sturgeon to get the caviar. That's right. So, so caviar is uh, right. okay. female eggs, right? And so, well, you, you technically could, you know, just kind of take the eggs out of the female and not kill the female adult. But the best caviar, the, the stuff that people are willing to spend the most bucks for has to be kind of unspent or, or not yet kind of um, extruded. So you have to kill the female in order to get the caviar out. And uh, an Atlantic sturgeon, you don't have a great way to tell a male from a female. Like now we've gotten a little bit better from using some characteristics. Um, but, you know, in the 1800s, going real fast, they don't they don't know if it's a female. So they're killing the males, too, and just kind of throwing them to the side. Um, and at the time, too, you know, the the flesh of, of Atlantic sturgeon wasn't very popular. Um, I've never tasted Atlantic sturgeon. I have no idea what it tastes like. Um, but, you know, there's some textbooks that say it, it definitely wasn't a desirable protein by any means. So you're wasting basically the entire fish just to get the eggs out. The, the real problem is that it takes a sturgeon 5, 15, 30 years in order to actually reach maturity again. So if you take out all of your adults just a couple years in a row, there basically are no adults left, right? So... It's not like a trout or, or some of these other kind of faster living species where they'll kind of replenish their populations pretty quickly. Um, all of the adults were kind of taken out in the mid 1800s, late 1800s. And then that was it. There wasn't much of a bounce back. And, and, you know, we're still kind of trying to bounce back because we're only one, two generations after kind of that massive over harvest event. Um, and, and it's going to, it just takes a while for those populations, um, to hopefully rebound. But, you know, you asked about population sizes and that's kind of where this started. You know, they used to be, depending on the river, the population size estimates used to be in the hundreds of thousands. Um, now some of the best rivers that we have some sort of estimate for, we're thinking is in the mid hundreds, maybe, maybe three, 500, um, the Delaware River is closer to about 125, 150 adults that are coming Amazing. back in e each each year. Yeah. So we're, we're the number that we kind of throw out as like the biggest shock factor is that the population size of Atlantic sturgeon in the Delaware is less than 1% of the historic highs based on our estimates. And you did the estimates. I, I thought it was a neat way to study it. Do you want to talk a little bit about the the sort of way the, how you figure out, because I, I was talking to a, a guy who worked for the, for the Delaware um, in Delaware fisheries. Uh, 
and he was pointing out that like in a big river in an urban working river where you've got big ships coming up and down, you can't like string a net all the way across the river and count literally count the fish. So you have to use other methods to, to, to sort of extrapolate, to get at it. So how do you do it? And real quick, isn't the Del- yeah. sorry, isn't the Delaware one of the, the largest undammed rivers in the country? Like it's a big deal that there's that few sturgeon in this river. Cause it's a huge undammed massive river, right? Yeah, yeah, that that is accurate. Um, what's a little bit harder with sturgeon is that, yeah, there's a lot of river miles, but they require like very specific habitats. So spawning habitat, it has to be uh, like a, lar- a hard substrate. So it has to be like a gravel or a bedrock or, you know, boulders for sturgeon to spawn. So you could have a ton of that habitat or a ton of those river miles um, but if it's silt or if it's mud, that's not really going to help sturgeon too much. Yeah, the title Delaware is a muddy river. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, it's, I'm trying to think where you have the gravel. It's got to be sort of really close to the fall line. Um, I, I mean, this kind of gets back to it. It's, it's in, the, in the Delaware River, there's best guesses on where spawning is happening. Um, but... I, I, and it, by all indications, they're correct. The, those guesses are right. probably correct. And it's, it's just outside of Philly. Um, but we, it's not like 100% confirmed, right? Like I we mean, have a lot like, of evidence to suggest, but it's not 100% there yet. It's not like you're talking about some narrow, clear, shallow creek in Alaska where you can see the salmon. <laughs> it's like we're yeah, talking no, about- it, it's, it looks exactly, it's just a <laughs> deep, brown water and and it's like oh they're they're here somewhere right because they're not going to get past trenton right because that's uh right that's they, they're not going to get a, even though there's no dams they're not going to get above the falls right so they're not going to they're not going past trenton which is you know, probably only yeah not even 100 miles from the estuary right yeah, or, yeah i have a map of like where we detect them let me see if i can give you an estimate and so for people um, who don't know the, the area, Trenton is a city in central New Jersey that's about an hour north of Philadelphia and sits at where there's the transition from like the coastal plain to the rockier, hillier part of the country, the Piedmont. And so I, I throw this term. I love one of my favorite terms um, given where we live, but the fall line is often the way you refer to that transition from the rocky area to the coastal plain. And the uh, so, good. Oh no, I'm just saying for people who don't know, understand the region, when we say an hour north of Philadelphia, it's not like there's wilderness <laughs> in between. Like what's in between Philadelphia and Trenton is most others would be the density of most other cities. Like, <laughs> like, like it's it's suburbs, but we call it suburbs. But it's like yeah, between Philly and 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 I mean, there's some parks, some natural areas, but between Philly and Trenton, it's basically just. It's the same metropolitan area. It's just an extremely densely populated area. So that's why it, gotcha. we're talking about this in the context of urban wildlife. I mean, this is a very urban area. So we monitor sturgeon movements um, just kind of south of Trenton. So Burlington, New Jersey um, is, is where we have our last, uh, at least where I have data for the last kind of detections when we're monitoring sturgeon movement around Delaware River. Okay. Um, and 
I guess the you mentioned one thing that uh, one factor for why we, you know, it's been uh, it's 2023. It's been more than a hundred years since the 130 years since the crash and during the sturgeon boom or the caviar boom on the Delaware. Um, and you point out one thing, which is just frankly that, that with a long lived creature, it can basically take a female's entire lifespan to produce enough offspring to have enough survive to adulthood to replace herself. Um, so you only got a couple generations or maybe even you know, three or four generations. It's still not a lot of generations. Um, but also, you know, what are other factors that, that, uh, that hurt sturgeon or, you know, keep them from bouncing back? Do you think? Yeah. So the, the long time before a sturgeon reaches maturity and, um, kind of the long lifespan are kind of the two life history aspects that are certainly not helping things. Um, the need for very specific spawning habitats, uh, you know, that, that hard bottom substrate is becoming increasingly harder to find. And also it has to be in fresh water. So as sea level rises, that salt water line is going to get further and further into our freshwater habitats and continue kind of moving and marching what is viable spawning habitat further and further up the river. Um, and, and, you know, we don't, we don't know how much of this is going on, but if you think about it, um, you know, a lot is changing in these river systems uh, in, in 10, 20, 30 years. And the time span between a sturgeon, a juvenile sturgeon leaving the river and then coming back to spawn that habitat is totally different, right? So it could be that the salt line moved. It could be that, um, you know, the substrate has changed. It could be that there's a whole new shipping traffic or channel that's there now that they weren't used to. Um, so, you know, how much memory a sturgeon has and how much it's looking for an area versus it knows to, to you know, go further up. I don't think we really have a great feel for that. Um, but the fact that there's so much rapid change for a very slow moving species can't be great by any means. Right. Um, and, and at this point too, especially in the Delaware, one thing that's hurting it is just getting hit by boats. We're, we're getting a lot of, of fish that are getting struck by some of these big boats. And we're talking about largely those spawning adults that are going in to make the next generation and before they can get there, you know, they're getting chopped in half, basically. Um, so that's not every river that that's a huge, huge concern, but it's definitely one in the Delaware um, that that's definitely kind of at the top of the list right now. I would imagine the Hudson and like, I don't know, some of the other big, um, i trying to think what other big rivers I'd be thinking of on the East Coast, but. Connecticut? Thank you. Connecticut River, yeah. The Connecticut population is thought to be extinct at this point. Um, well, it's it's got some Atlantic sturgeon in it, but we're not sure where they came from. <laughs> so there's some of those stray sturgeon that you were talking about before that sometimes they, they wander around a little bit. It's possibly some stray sturgeon. Um, it's possibly some issues with um, illegal stocking. What? All right, we got to drop this bomb. Uh, 
There's a so it's actually really easy for people to get your hands on sturgeon. Uh, not necessarily Atlantic sturgeon. There, we wrote another paper on this recently about um, kind of captive culture for sturgeons across the entire globe is probably going to become an issue. Um, so, like, if you were to go to eBay right now, you can get endangered species of sturgeon shipped directly to you right now. But what's yeah, the source? Hatchery fish. Yeah, um, how they got into hatcheries is can be a pretty mixed bag. Um, you know, it, it's again like there's there's no like one smoking gun. It can be old hatcheries that have been grandfathered in. It can be people that caught one and came home with it, and now it's their pet sturgeon. Um, it's it's everything, right? And there's. There's no great policies that well you're not to, you're, it's illegal to stock sturgeon. Let me start. I was going to say it's illegal to usually possess an endangered species. Um, there's no, a lot sorry. of gray area there. <laughs> all right. I Depending the on how like you got it and, and everything else, it's it's a whole gray area. Jeez, man! I, I was going to say I come from the world of reptiles and amphibians, and like it is very well understood. That like if you like there's just no legal way to have a bog turtle in your house, you know, <laughs> like or sorry, in your car, literally in a lot of cases, even in your hands, even just for a second. And so like yeah. the idea that you can like have an endangered fish in your. Uh, Wait, just, what if you live well, in a wet, what if your house happens to be a, like a sedge meadow, wet sedge meadow? That, could you have a bug? I mean, you're you take a picture of it and you walk away. Like you're supposed to, and I would I, I think honestly, if you pick it up for a sec to see what it is and take a picture, you're probably not going to get in trouble. But the idea is that like when something is endangered like that, you don't it from an enforcement angle, you don't know if that person holding it in their hand intends to put it back down, you know, and so like you basically have to treat all those situations like it's um like someone's uh possibly smuggling it i i i am someone who has picked up a bog turtle i was i honestly got thought it was a spotted turtle picked it up was like oh shit oh, no. uh, and then but then i took pictures <laughs> of it and, and sent it to and sent it right away to um fish and boat which is what handles reptiles and amphibians in pennsylvania and people i know so we documented it and i already had permits for other stuff with fish and boats. So I think they knew me. Um, but like, I, it was the kind of thing where I was like, you know, I, I picked it up and then it was, there's like two completing circuits in my brain, which were like, Hey, Oh my God, it's a bog turtle. I have to show everybody. And then like, put it down, put it down. Put it down. <laughs> you know, like, you can, like a hot potato, you know, like put it down. Uh, so I took like a couple pictures and I put it down and I've not seen that turtle again. Um, but any case, you're, we're talking about how, how the, the, that, that there's the chance that you could, which I could imagine can screw up all kinds of things. I mean, I think your paper got into questions of disease transmission, um, possibilities. You've got just swamping of genetics. Um, and I think there's, there's a, there's an element of a, that like a, a I, I don't know. Tell me. Sorry, I'm starting to recite your your findings to you. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, I was going to say, you know, one thing because Atlantic sturgeon do go back to their natal rivers in order to spawn. 
what you get is basically every river has its own distinct genetic population. And so sometimes there's actually two genetically distinct populations within one river, one spring spring spawning run and one fall spawning run. Um, And so from a scientific perspective, it's actually really helpful because we can take a little bit of the fin off of that fish, do what I call like laboratory voodoo and get what I kind of call like, you know, the DNA fingerprint for that fish. So it's a micro satellite um, genetic loci panel. But it basically just tells us we can run some some statistics and it, it tells us if I if I had a fish and I gave you its fin clip, I can tell you with a good amount of certainty which population it came from. Um, and that's how we know that this population in Connecticut probably isn't from Connecticut originally because genetically it has seemed to look much more like a, a population from um, somewhere in the South Atlantic. I think it's Georgia is, I think, the one of the rivers that it kind of keeps going back to as, as being the most likely source of those fish. So some guy um, in Savannah is. <laughs> <laughs> we got our eyes on you. Um, yeah, so so it's still kind of being debated at this point as to like where those fish came from and then what's the future, right? Because if, if they are going to actually reestablish a spawning population – um, it's interesting. It'd be nice to recover an Atlantic sturgeon population, but it does complicate things because one thing we use that genetic fingerprinting for, more or less, it is to kind of figure out which rivers or which regions are being impacted by certain management decisions more. So mm. just made up example, if if we were doing some sort of, you know, wind development or, or anything offshore and you wanted to know what sturgeon are out here, because right when they get in the ocean, they all mix up. There's fish from all over the coast in these areas in the ocean. You can take a bunch of fin clips. We can do that genetic voodoo. And I can tell you, okay, well, it's these hundred fish are this proportion from this river, from this river, and so forth. But but now we have potentially an issue where um, I can't tell Connecticut apart from other populations in the South. So is it the South that's being impacted or is it this Connecticut River population that's being impacted? We don't, it, it's very hard for us to tell at this point, especially with only genetic data. Um, we also do a lot of movement studies and we have a lot of collaborative networks across the entire coast that look at movement. And that gives you a little bit more sense for that, but it definitely takes one tool out of the toolbox, so to speak, for us to be able to manage the species effectively. Huh. Um, and I, I cut you off before we, we, we strayed when you were, I was asking you really quick, um, call it the cocktail party version of the explanation for how you did it. Um, like how did you figure out how many or how few, um, river sturgeon we now have in the river, like the Delaware? Yeah. So like we were talking about these adult Atlantic sturgeon, very hard to capture, right? So they're in their spawning rivers for sometimes days, some, sometimes weeks, but often sometimes just days at a time. We can't. Um, spread nets across the entire river. Even if we could, the chances of actually catching a sturgeon and not killing it, right? Our, our sampling methods can also be lethal. But so our chances of successfully capturing a sturgeon and releasing it and doing that 
well enough to get a population estimate is is not the greatest for the adults. And then once they're in the ocean, they're basically impossible at that point, right? So we started to kind of think, well, if we can't capture the adults, what could we do with juveniles? So um, it works out that juveniles are sometimes easier to capture because they, they kind of congregate in certain areas at certain times of year. Um, they're a little bit more prone to getting caught in, in some of our gears. Um, and, and sometimes also there's interest in kind of moving juveniles from areas that might um, have some sort of big disturbance event. So sometimes in some rivers, we're able to get our hands on juveniles. And so we were thinking, okay, well, we have all these juveniles and we can get our genetic data on it. Um, can we basically build a family tree? So it, you, exactly like you might you know, build your own family tree where um, you can run some genetics and, and figure out who's a sibling and, and you know, how many parents are being shared among those siblings and do kind of some back calculations to get at the number of adults. So you might have a hundred juveniles, but if they're all siblings, then feasibly they could only be two adults, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's a little bit more complicated, but that's what it came down to. We built a bunch of family trees for sturgeon to figure out how many adults likely produced all of those juveniles. And that's where we get to that number of like, it looks to be around 125 to 150. Good Lord. Every time you say it, I like my heart. Cringe. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So this is now maybe getting beyond what you particularly specifically researched, but you're smart. You know a lot of stuff. Um, When we look at sturgeon uh, in the Delaware, we're talking about the things that are problems for them. And I'll, I'll list a few. I mean, we talked about boat strikes um, and then I've heard that channelization could have an impact because it brings uh, saltier water deeper or further into the, the river um, and also just changes the, the substrate. Um, uh, and these strike me as factors that you'd see in pretty much any port along a river anywhere. Um, whether that's in the mid-Atlantic of, the, of North America or, or, or Europe or the Pacific. And I'm wondering, like, do you, are, are these common problems for sturgeon, anadromous sturgeon populations around the world? Or is it like the mid-Atlantic different? I don't know. Um, it is and it isn't. Um, you know, the shipping problem, um, it's not isolated to the East coast, I would say, but it does seem to be, um, a little bit stronger of a pressure, um, compared to some of the other Eurasian species, for example, where, um, damming is, is one of the big problems Uh, there where they can't actually access any of that river habitat anymore. So, um, and then some of the other species are, are more lake dependent than Atlantic sturgeon. Versus, you know, Atlantic sturgeon just basically only do rivers for the most part. Um, so, yeah, it's not it's not a isolated problem to this species. And, I mean, there's also short-nosed sturgeon in a lot of these rivers, too. Um, so just right there, there adds another species, at least in the Hudson and a couple of the other rivers, too. Um, no, there's but again, a new I, story. It actually made the paper in Philadelphia 
um, a few years ago when a guy caught a short-nosed sturgeon uh, in Philadelphia, uh, not intentionally, sort of pulled it in when he was fishing for, for I think, stripers or something um, near the art museum uh, just on the Schuylkill River in, in Philadelphia. Uh, and it was taken as a positive thing that, like, the water quality has improved in the Schuylkill enough that we can have short-nosed sturgeon again. Sturgeon, oh, well, fish in general, they go some crazy places. Um, and, and it's now that we're, we're able to track it a little bit better, you know, our, our technology for tracking fish movement is mind blowing at this point. Um, we're getting, we're getting a lot of new insights. I think like almost every day as to very individual variation in movement and, and how, where these fish will go if you just leave the doors open essentially. And, and it's all, it makes it increasingly important that we protect kind of a diversity of habitats that we may have thought weren't so important to begin with. And that now that we're getting some better technologies, we're seeing like, Oh, actually story's hard. It's much well, more complicated. I got to ask you now, blow our minds. How, how do you track where a sturgeon goes? There's a lot of methods. Um, so, so one, let me give you all the rundown now. So from a genetic <laughs> standpoint, um, if you catch a fish and when we genotype it, then, then we can tell you that, you know, where that fish likely was born. So if you caught a fish outside uh, Delaware Bay, there's a good chance it actually didn't come from Delaware. There's a good chance it's from somewhere else. Um, just because Delaware Bay is, is a really important sturgeon habitat for populations throughout the entire coast. Um, so that, that can give you some hint, but that's just kind of a straight line, right? That's not going to tell you what they did in between. So um, there's all kinds of tagging technologies now. So um, there's uh, passive integrated transponder tags, which actually go kind of, uh, it's just, it's basically the technology that you would put into a dog. It's a little tiny tag. It lasts forever. Um, a lot of adult sturgeon or even juvenile sturgeon are getting tagged by those pit tags. And oftentimes and when a researcher catches a sturgeon, they wand for that tag and write the tag number down. And then we can kind of trace back who's caught that fish. So that gives you a couple more dots to fill in. But then um, kind of what a lot of people are doing now is acoustic telemetry. So that's a tag that is a little bit bigger. And um, the battery life on that tag can be anywhere from five to 10 years. Mm. Um so that tag is kind of constantly emitting a signal. And uh, if you have a receiver that's nearby, it'll detect that fish for you. And so, um, you know, throughout the years and with a lot of collaborations, we have not we, but again, sturgeon biologists at large have a ton of acoustic receivers throughout the entire East Coast at this point. And we're starting to kind of compile some of that data to, to add in even more dots that you can use to connect um, kind of the, the track record of where a sturgeon went. Um, and, but one limitation of an acoustic receiver or an acoustic tag is that that fish needs to travel close to the receiver in order to be detected. Um, so we can put out a ton of receivers, uh, and it generates a ton of data, you know, millions and millions of detections. Um, but, and I, you know, I kind of talked about this a little bit, we don't know how far those sturgeon are going into the, basically the middle of the ocean, because who's going to stick out a receiver, you know, hundred miles offshore. 
So um, there's now satellite tags. So that's a tag. It, it doesn't last very long, but it, it constantly kind of pings to satellites to let you know uh, where that sturgeon is going, basically at all times. And that's independent of receivers or anything else. The other one that it just came to my mind is, um, again, the, the, the spawning habitat for Atlantic sturgeon is super isolated and um, anything that you do to that habitat, not the greatest, right? And and one thing that we don't have a great understanding on as to how it could be impacting sturgeon, but again, it sounds like a really bad idea, is um, anchorage areas where these uh, big ship anchors are kind of getting thrown into the river and then dragged across the river bottom. That can't huh. be terribly good for sturgeon. In their spawning habitat. Um, I never even thought about that. Yeah. Um, some colleagues at uh, University of Delaware, Delaware State, New York, D, uh, they're studying it uh, right now in the Hudson River and I think uh, looking to extend it into the Delaware. Um, yeah. And, and so we're using some technologies right now to kind of map what the river bottom looks like. And you know, when you're, when you're kind of driving the boat around and looking at some of this imagery that's coming up, it's startling how many, you know, like it looks like rope is just running around the bottom of the riverbed where these anchors have just been dragged through, um, you know, sometimes for like several hundreds of meters or even longer, probably it's a lot. Can't be good for muscle populations either, man. Um, it can't be good for anything that needs to be on the bottom. Let's just stop there. Fair, fair to say. You know, Bill, do you know what I'm, I'm thinking? Do you know how you invite me? I've done that, I think, two, twice. I'm happy to do it again. But you know how you invite me to come snorkeling with you for map turtles in Delaware? I yeah. bet you that's the area or close to it is where these sturgeons are, are breeding. I, I hear you. I think we're on the other side of the fall line, though. Like I've, I've, I've. Um, now I'm curious to like go a few hundred yards downstream. There's, I, I have, I have snorkeled basically right at the fall line, like in, in Trenton, where there's, there's sort of like a spot where actually, I don't know, I, where I, I, I think that's where we're where the rocks stop basically. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just remember some big boulders and freaking huge flathead catfish under them. Yeah. I, I, I have plausibly been in water that sturgeon flowing downstream sturgeon would have been in like a few minutes later, I guess. And Shannon made a face of flathead catfish. Well, um, I mean, it just, it brings up a whole nother, uh, I call problem. them shad vacuums. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So Especially some of these uh, non-native catfish species, but any kind of piscivorous fish at this point. Um, yeah. I have a hard time imagining they're not eating sturgeon eggs, right? Oh. I mean, if they eat eggs of everything else and, and, like- and the little juveniles, right? If they're eating... If they're eating... And, and a lot of times they're co-occurring in the same rivers as Atlantic sturgeon... I don't, I don't know for sure that it's been documented. Like, I'm not sure that there's been like a stomach content that had a clear sturgeon in it. I'm sure there has, to be honest with you. Well, now you Um, got me curious, Shannon. I have a fantasy 
you know, I, I don't even eat animals. I'm vegetarian. But I've like, I would eat a flathead catfish, except for the fact that they're essentially too toxic to eat more than, <laughs> if you look at the, the, the recommendations, you're only supposed to have one meal of flathead catfish from the Delaware River uh, once per month. Like that's as much as you can eat without, they think, getting too much PCBs in your system from eating those suckers. Um, but maybe I'll just go in there and just like, this is again, fantasy. If we, if we have a friend, Tony, I have a friend um, who has spearfishing experience. Um, and I was like, I, I was like, you know, I, I call him up with a crazy idea. What if we, you know, like, can we spearfish flathead catfish under rocks in the Delaware? And he was basically like, it's totally doable. Um, but we're sort of, it, it's a, still in fantasy realm for people who have already too many hobbies. Um, but I, <laughs> uh, now I'm like, well, what if I was like killing them and cutting them open? And we'll just do like a, put everything on iNaturalist, what we find in the stomachs of, Flathead it would be very, it would be very interesting. <laughs> um, I know, I know in Virginia, they're really concerned right now with blue catfish. Um, Cause oh, there's yeah. two rivers of populations, at least two rivers of populations of uh, Atlantic sturgeon in, in Virginia. Um, uh, those guys are, are even nastier, I think than flatheads. Well, Cause they swim around a lot more. Like, why do you think? They, they just seem to eat more. Uh, okay. I mean, hard to imagine, but they get bigger. Um, yeah, they're. Ugh. And when you say get bigger, let's frame this. So, a big blue catfish is like it weighs as much as a person. I mean, these oh, are easily, absolutely, yeah. If you're thinking of like the channel catfish that you caught on some stinky bait, you know, and it was, you know, I don't know, a few pounds, and you fried it up for dinner, blue cats can get like, like. I don't know, 40, 50, 60 plus pounds. Um, and the really big ones that they drag out of big rivers in the Midwest are, are sometimes, uh, you know, again, person size. Um, and it, they're expanding populations too. So, you know, they're, they're growing in individual numbers, but also like they're exploring these new ecological niches where they're just able to basically like gobble up everything they want. So they're growing in, so a lot of individuals, but every individual is also growing pretty fast. Jeez. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause we're, um, well, it, so flathead catfish are on the radar of Billy and I, because you know, they're an invasive species in Philadelphia and Philadelphia has two rivers in I know you know this, Shannon, but remember, people don't know Philadelphia um, in this area. Uh, but there's two rivers. The ma- major river is Delaware. The smaller river of the tributary is Schuylkill. Although if we were out west, it'd be major river. But we're out east. We're, we're practically in a rainforest. And um, so we have lots of water out here, um, which cracks me up when people out west, like my friends who moved out west will post, like, when we have a blizzard, they'll be like, ha-ha, they'll send me a screenshot of their, of their like, weather app about their nice weather and i'm like that's cool i live i got off i got paid to be off and work today and i can walk to tons of restaurants and hang out with my friends and we have tons of water so why why are you teasing me about but anyway um so um so we have two rivers the big rivers of delaware the smaller river which would be a major river out west is a schuylkill there is a uh, falls i think it's a artificial falls um and there's a fish ladder, but apparently these flathead catfish, which are the ones that 
one of the fish catfish that people noodle they stick in the oklahoma they stick their hands in their mouth and anyway, they post up at this fish ladder and just hammer the shad that are migrating up the schuylkill so this is a big deal for us in philly yeah, and like there's so many of them, they're having to close the ladders down early. So they're not even getting like as many shad through anymore because they're concerned about them letting all these other inv- – I mean, snakehead is also going to be a problem for the same reason. Maybe not the same numbers, but it's the same thing. It's trying to get through the ladders. Uh, and so it, when people think of what a fish ladder is, I didn't quite understand what they were before. But what they are is, if, let's say you've got a big wide river, Schuylkill River, hundreds of yards across, um, and you've got a dam running the length of the river, actually at an angle. But in any case, um, shad, which unlike the salmon you might think about west, they don't jump. They have to sort of have continuous water to, to get up a, a river. They have all these mechanisms like water directed across the river and stuff to try to lure them into what is essentially a series of closets that are kind of offset from each other and sort of go up a little bit more each one until you get to above the dam. But that means that your entire like migration of shad is concentrated into like only a few yards width of, of river. Um, And that means that rather than having them spread out across the river and having a whole lot of target for targets for let's say a catfish, you know, you just need a few catfish and they can essentially every single shad coming up river has to go past those catfish. Exotic invasive. I don't know if we've ever talked about this in our podcast before. So I live, um, Billy, Billy lives in West Philly. I live in, in Roxborough. And weirdly, there's this tiny, there's this little neighborhood in Philadelphia called Maniunk that has like a strip called Main Street with a whole bunch of cool shops and stores. But it's funny because my neighborhood, Roxborough, completely surrounds it. And it's just like this little strip along the school river called Maniac. And what I think it was is Maniac was before Philadelphia. Philadelphia is contiguous with the county of Philadelphia. And at one point, there was the city of Philadelphia and the county of Philadelphia. Now we're one and the same since the 1800s. And Maniac was his own little tiny city settlement that's been absorbed by Philadelphia. I'm bringing this up because Maniunk is this little strip along the Schuylkill River, and they fought a war with a town just outside the city limits of Philadelphia called Conshohocken over Shad. Because, really? Because Maniunk put a net across the Schuylkill to catch the Shad, and Conshohocken didn't get the Shad. So people from Conshohocken literally came down to Maniac, and people died over shad. That's how big a deal this is. These migratory wow. fish, androgynous, not androgynous. What's the word? I always confuse <laughs> androgynous. Anadromous. How do you say it? Anadromous. Anadromous. I always want to say androgynous. Probably because I watched too many John Hughes <laughs> movies growing up, but androgynous <laughs> fish. People fought a war over it. Literally, people died over shad. Also, by the way, just north of Philadelphia is Valley Forge with this. this fa- it's funny because it's like there wasn't even a battle. It's just this, this, this. It was a it was a winter camp. Yeah, it was yeah. like basically George Washington's troops survived the winter just outside of Philadelphia by eating dried shad. 
Oh, yeah. That's how important this migratory fish is to, culturally. It, with our wildlife podcast, we're circling back here. We have one of the worst healthcare systems of the entire industrialized world because George Washington was successful at beating the British because of Shad. <laughs> so you're blaming Shad for my, my, my deductibles? Yeah, I was making this joke every 4th of July. I'm like, oh, 4th of July. It's like, you know, like, oh, the day the United States decided to, like, pay for our own health care out of pocket. Seriously, like, oh, what what do we get for kicking England out of here? Capitalism and paying for our own health care? Do we really live better than English people? I don't think so. In an indirect way, you're 100% right. Yeah. Um, but that's the whole point. Yeah, this right. is our wildlife podcast. This is the intersection of wildlife and people. And, like... Migratory fish, sturgeon, shad. I mean, this is, I mean, it's crazy, but this. As we were talking about earlier, it's like a lot of the migratory fish, we just don't even think about anymore because we don't see them, right? And fish are hard anyway, right? They're under the water. Unless you go fishing, in which case you probably only catch a few anyway, you just don't get to interact. I'll speak highly for snorkeling. I think everybody thinks of it as something you do in the tropics, but like, I have a lot of fun. I used to say when I was a kid, I'd, I'd go bass fishing. Um, and I felt lucky if I caught a couple and then mm-hmm. like these days I'll stick my head in, I'll swim around looking for map turtles in the Delaware and I see smallmouth all over the place. Oh yeah. They like <laughs> love to like come cuddle you is my experience snorkeling with them. Like they yeah. get crazy close. I see those. I see channel cats. I see, um, mm-hmm. I think I saw quillback. Is that one of them? Like it's, it's like a weird the sucker, very large sucker. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a at least to one. me, yeah. it seemed like it was large. Uh, and so you see all these, not to mention like, I, I like all these little, it's, it's, I feel like it's insulting to a fish biologist to talk like this, but all these like little fish that I want to call minnows, although I know they have their each distinct identities. Um, minnows a family. Shiners and, all of those are men or all of those are the minnow family. You're fine. <laughs> I love fish. It's just that, like, I don't. I'm not Aquaman, so I don't see them regularly, and I'm not. Bet- well, that's why fish conservation is hard, right? You want to share or save the charismatic, petable, cute things, and then it's like, there's some fish over here too. Prom- I promise they're here. <laughs> and also, as someone who's like, it drives me nuts. I'm sure you're you're gonna feel me on this. I know you are. Someone who's in the nature, I've talked about this incessantly, but people are always like, oh, you love nature. Why don't you move to Colorado? And I'm like, because the, bio- the lack of biodiversity would drive me nuts because I live out east in the center of biodiversity of the country. It's, well, I know it's technically the southeast, but still, we're pretty close. Freshwater fish, it, the, the southeast, the lower, the southern Appalachians is – Unbelievably biodiverse. I know like French Creek just outside of Philadelphia has like an incredible diversity of freshwater fish. A lot of them are really small, but they're awesome. I always joke that I'm a bird birder because I'm lazy because, you know, birds are easy to see. But like I tell people over and over again that like I love snorkeling every bit as much as birding. It's just harder to do. But like if you love in the varsity of wildlife, the east, and sp- I mean, we're, we're in the mid Atlantic, but the southeast is unbelievable. There's so many endemic fishes in these different drainages in the southern Appalachians, in the Piedmont, in like Georgia, in like Alabama. It's unbelievable. 
I agree. Yeah. I mean, it, that is like one of the highest diversity hotspots for um, fish and amphibians in the Southeast. So yeah. what do you, I, I'm going to wrap it up. What, I'll ask you, what are you working on next? Are you allowed to say? Yeah, probably. Um, a lot of the stuff that we're doing right now is looking at some of these differences in individual movement, um, trying to see if the habitats that we're protecting in some of these rivers are the right ones. Um, and if it's the fish that we thought we were, that were going there are going there. So, um, like I said, we have some assumptions about sturgeon ecology, namely, you know, that if you catch an adult in a river, it's going to be natal to that river. So we're starting to test some of these long hold beliefs about, um, sturgeon ecology and, and finding some pretty surprising results. So yeah, a lot of what we're doing is, is movement based right now. Um, we're always doing, um, genetic analyses, really trying to, to get at this idea of, um, how do we estimate population sizes? Cause at the end of the day, you need a population size to know who's there, but also if your recovery is working, right? So I can yep. tell you today what that population looks like, but um, what what is that compared to 20 years ago and 20 years um, from now, right? Um, and then a big project that we're just starting right now is looking at um, how sturgeon populations are responding to offshore uh, dredging. Um, so there's a lot of, um, you know, like beach renourishment projects where they pump oh, that sand off from you know miles yeah. offshore to put it back onto the beach. Or, or, I mean, sand is used for a lot of stuff. We think of sand as just like a nuisance when you go to the beach. Sand is a really, really uh, popular thing for a lot of industry. Um, so, yeah, so we're it's looking like at concrete, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, um, these sand areas, we think, hold sturgeon a lot in winter. So how are the sturgeon going to respond if you hoover up their habitat, more or less? I hate going to the beach. I only go to the beach in the winter to look at, like, seabirds and, and like, sea ducks. This is big boat of contention with my wife who loves sitting on the beach. So now I can be like, I don't want to go sit on the beach because this sand – been stolen from sturgeon so now i have it. <laughs> it's blood sand <laughs> all right well um thank you shannon i'm gonna let you go it's 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 getting late for two middle-aged dads <laughs> like us who have to wake up early in the morning hopefully we we'll leave some people with some hope um that you know that uh you know I'll, here's my bit of hope i've i've uh in, in philadelphia in the past 20 years, you've had a resurgence of, of castor canadensis, the, the beaver. And it is something that I point out to people that Philadelphia, when the Swedes showed up in Philadelphia in the 1640s, they were writing back, writing home to sort of say that, yeah, we're trading for beaver pelts from further inland because they're already wiped out right around here. Um, and so we went from the 1640s um, to about 20 years ago without beavers in, in Philadelphia. You know, it, it gives me some hope that even when it looks really dire, that that comebacks are possible with wildlife. Yeah, I mean, they're literally, my department literally has to figure out 
what to do about beavers chewing out to you know destroying our like i mean washington dc gets the correct gets like all the hype about cherry trees but philadelphia also has an unbelievable you know cherry blossom spectacle and beavers are literally chewing them down and we have to figure out how to deal with that tony next we gotta do a beaver episode next man we got it's it's, it's coming absolutely all right Sean, have a good night it was a pleasure yeah thanks for inviting me this was awesome thank you so much it was wonderful